Hello, neighbor. I am Amanda O'Fox Gillespie, and I welcome you to Folk University's Friday Folk You Talk Show on CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. Ever wondered, what is Folk University? Well, it's an experiment in slow learning. It is a question. Can we create a more resilient and enjoyable community simply by sharing what we already know with each other? Folk University is an opportunity for neighbors to share our ideas, our interests, our skills, and our passions. It is the only university where nobody ever graduates. Hey, at Folk University, you can be the janitor and the dean. Last month, we partnered on a series of shows called Nature is Good for You with Friends of Cortez Island. And to transition to either a more hopeful or a depressing note, I'm not sure, today's show is on climate hope with Karen Mahone Carrington. Karen has defined hope as the refusal to give up on love, an idea that I find so powerful I wrote an entire essay on the subject the refusal to give up on love. Welcome, Karen, to Folk University and CKTZ. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Amanda. So let's start with this idea of hope a little bit more. What is climate hope? And how did you find yourself starting this organization? And here, how did you find yourself here? On Cortez. <laughs> well, uh, on Sunday, I'm taking the ferry down to Vancouver to pack up my float house, uh, which is there in Squamish territory, and move full-time to Cortez. So I've been here part-time for 20 years and mostly full-time for the last few years, but now um, have committed deeply in the sense that we are selling our Cortez, our Vancouver float house and becoming a full-time resident. So it's very interesting transition for me. I feel like a deep Cortesian in many ways and like a brand new Cortesian in other ways. And I'm excited to bring what I know about climate change, about climate mitigation, about adaptation to Cortez so we can really be a model for the world in climate resilient living. And I think we have that potential and I think the world needs it. And I think we're one of the few places in the world that actually has the resources, human and economic resources, and is sheltered enough from the direct crises that are currently being caused, caused by climate change that we have enough time to actually dig in and develop solutions that other communities might be able to model. So I think it's, a, it's an opportune time for us to step up as a community into a global conversation about how do communities plan to survive and thrive in an increasingly chaotic world. This seems like a, a practical segue then into um, this idea of hope, because I think that uh, a lot of people would hear climate hope and it feels almost oxymoronic. So can you talk a little bit about um, you know, why you chose that name for your organization, what it means to you to bring those two words and ideas together? Absolutely. So I've been an environmentalist since mm, my early, uh, early 20s. Um, and I think we all thought, those of us that were environmentally aware, 
thought we were facing the potential for some kind of collapse when we looked at, for instance, global forest maps and saw that 80% of our original forest cover was gone. Um, I am old enough that I worked on the ozone issue. So we've been, I've been my whole life thinking about, you know, how are we going to revamp our society so that it can live in harmony with, with nature, so that we who are, of course, part of nature um, can thrive, not at the expense of nature, but alongside nature. And as the climate crisis continued to worsen and worsen and worsen, it seemed like there was a kind of, there is now, a kind of fatalism emerging. Oh, well, we're kind of, we're screwed anyway. Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to live my life the best I can for me and mine. And I remember that when I was, uh, quite a few years ago, I was listening to an interview with Barbara Kingsolver, an American author who many people no, I think. Um, she w most recently wrote a book called The Butterfly Effect, which if you haven't read it, is fantastic. About It's a novel uh, with climate change as one of the characters, as it were. And I heard her interviewed on CBC Radio. And she's been a nuclear activist and a food activist most of her life. And the interviewer said to her, well, you're very hopeful and you're very optimistic. And I find that surprising because most activists actually could be quite angry or despairing. And that's fair. I mean, I think people, we're literally angry about what we love being destroyed. Fair enough. And she said, well, you know what? I am an optimist because I choose to be. I believe that optimism is the only moral choice. She said she gets up in the morning and puts on her sweater, uh, puts on her optimism like a sweater you know, some days it's just there and you wake up and you feel good. And other days it's not there. And she makes a conscious choice to move into that space of hope and optimism. Because, as she went on to say, to raise our children in a world without hope is to create a kind of societal child abuse. And I will not be part of that. And when I heard her say that, I think I took that vow on. I will not be part of that. We have to have hope. Hope is about the future. And what we, the fact that we are ha can have hope or will choose hope is distinctly different from the question of what we are hopeful for. I am not hopeful that my 25-year-old son, Aiden, will live the life I have lived. He will not. It will look profoundly different. It will have significantly more challenges in some ways. And yet I am hopeful. I am hopeful that he will know love. I am hopeful that he will know sacrifice. I am hopeful that he will struggle through suffering to a place of grace. There is very much to be hopeful for, even in a world that seems to be collapsing around us. And I would argue that I do believe we're in the early stages of societal collapse. And the sooner we can understand that and let go of the way we have been living, the sooner we can move towards a life that could be sustaining for at least several billion of the people on the planet, if not all seven billion. I love it. This is one of the things that um, really draws me to you is that uh, I feel that you really model in your life this idea of hope being a choice. Um, and one of the more beautiful images that I go back to 
in my life is actually that of your wedding. Uh, so Karen Mahone last year became Karen Mahone Carrington. And I was really, and, and at this wedding, um, there was a monk who talked a lot about this idea of glorification. And I loved everything that, that, that word represented that this idea of you on a beautiful day in the summer, inviting the whole community to come and eat two dozen homemade wedding cakes and to choose a partner, not because there was any need to in the sense of you're done having your kids, you're, you're, you know, financially comfortable, you're already living together. It was really just a choice of, of hope, right? A choice of, of taking a moment to glorify those things that are perhaps about, um, about love, about, about something that connects us with God or something, you know, the greater human connection. It doesn't really matter what you believe in, but this idea that there is something greater and that we can use moments on earth to just revel in those connections. And I loved it. And it really inspired me. And one of the things that inspires me also about you is that you have this history of activism and climate work, and you're recently became a Buddhist monk. Can you talk a little bit about what made you decide to do that and what that process has been like? Um, not just from sort of a logistic way, but in taking this background of activism and tying it into something um, like Buddhism. Right. Thanks for that reminder of the wedding. It's nice to go back there. Um, and I was ordained last summer. Um, it was a big summer for me. I got married and ordained in one summer. <laughs> um, uh, not actually as a Buddhist monk, but as an interfaith minister. Um, and I've been struggling with the language. You know, it's so laden, our religious language, uh, because of the many atrocities, uh, honestly, um, that have been committed by the church and other institutionalized religion. But I really differentiate between religion and spirituality. Religion is the codification of spirituality. It's the attempt to take that experience of the divine and codify it in ritual for mass distribution. It's kind of the fast food, if you will, <laughs> of spirituality. Um, so this, the traditions that I am studied and practiced in are much more on the mystical side of mystical Christianity, mystical Judaism, um, and Buddhism to some extent. And the wedding was, you're right, a, an expression of that. Uh, I um, am part of a spiritual guidance community. Atumo Kane, who teaches here on Cortez, um, has a, he started actually at Hollyhock, a program of spiritual guidance. I know he has a guild of spiritual guidance practitioners around the world. There are about 500 of us, of which I am one, and I'm the first to be ordained. And so a tomb asked me to speak to our community of spiritual guides around the world about climate and how these things relate. This was about five years ago. And what that did was it set me on a path of looking at all the different traditions in the world, doing a deep dive into Buddhism, into mystical Christianity, to see what wisdom was there for us when we look at questions like, societal collapse 
I mean, the world has collapsed for people before. Think of wars. Think of people who are living through World War II. Their world was ending. Think of famines. Think of genocide. Think of colonialism. There are societies that have, that have collapsed before, that have been attacked and collapsed before. And what my question became, what wisdom is there that we can learn from that has been passed down to us through those other societies that have collapsed. And I was really surprised that I came up with essentially a map, essentially a map, I would say, that's right, of four different paths. And you see them in most every tradition in one form or another. And the most current modern articulated form of them has been put forward by Matthew Fox, who's an amazing uh, Christian mystic who used to be a Catholic priest but got kicked out of the church for um, insisting on the notion of original blessing instead of original sin. (laughs) So he's an incredible uh, resource if you haven't um, ever read him or heard of him, Matthew Fox. He talks about four paths, the four paths that I'm referring to that you see in many traditions, and he uses the Latin. So he calls them via positiva, via negativa, via creativa, and via activa. So via positiva is about celebrating and about awe, about connection and gratitude. And it's very important that in times of difficulty, we take time out to live into the via positiva. And so the wedding for me was an expression of the via positiva. Let's, in the midst of stormy weather where we don't know, you know, on Cortez, we don't know what August is going to look like. We don't know if we're going to be able to breathe the air. We wanted to say, let's come together and really celebrate love and community. And that is the, what the, that's, that's the via positiva. So the wedding was a direct outcome of my work on this. Um, and the, the two main forces there, via positiva and via negativa, of course, reflect the light and the dark, uh, life and death. They were first framed by Meister Eckhart in the 12th century. Um, so they're an ancient wisdom. And I feel like the wisdoms that are ancient and that are reflected in multiple traditions, there has to be something there, right? You think, okay, well, if the Taoists say it and, 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 and the Jewish mystics say it and the Christians say it, well, there's something there. So this idea of how do we balance the positive and the negative, and then how do we hold that paradox of birth and death, light and death, light and dark, um, how do we do hold that, paragra- that paradox? And what happens when we do is we kind of emerge into a new creative space. Okay, well then now what now is possible? And then how do we go forward, which is the via activa? So that's a, that's a map that I've been working with and presenting to climate activists um, who found it extremely helpful. Um, I do workshops on this. We do Climate Hope uh, workshops at Hollyhock and online. And I find these four paths to be a really essential tool in navigating the emotional and spiritual landscape of this time. And, and while... There is a lot of physical adaptation going on. We see climate, we see climate causing all of these problems in the world. We're talking about physical adaptation, 
but we have yet as a society to talk very much about emotional or spiritual adaptation, which is certainly just as important. I mean, if we all go to bed and hide under the covers and watch yet another Netflix episode because we can't take it anymore, we're not going to build the world that we need. So the work of Climate Hope is primarily around developing our muscles of spiritual and emotional adaptation to deal with the increasingly severe challenges before us. I find it really personally helpful to remember, as you said, and I really appreciate you bringing this up in that context, that this is not the first time that the world as we know it has faced major threats. Um, and, and I don't just mean through this pandemic, I mean through this uh, time of mass extinction that is being caused um, by human intervention and, um, and all the instability that comes along with it. I, oft, I find it very, uh, I guess, reassuring just to know that we, we humans have failed over and over and over again. And yet somehow there is this triumph that has also come that, that by the, the falling down, we find new ways to come back up. And I hope that we do this in a way that allows us to progress overall in some way towards, um, towards the higher potential of, of humanity, whatever that is. But I hope it is one of peace and love and connectivity and, um, and that kind of idea. And this leads well. You used this word of adaptation a lot. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means and in particular deep adaptation, which is used to really talk about um, a collection of thoughts uh, right now? Because the adaptation that we need is much, is much deeper, really, than thinking about sea level rise. I mean, that's an important thing, and on an island we have to think about sea level rise, but I feel like it's been a bit of a distraction uh, thinking about climate in terms of sea level rise. As a climate activist, probably about 10 years ago, the, the people that really understand public messaging and communications would say to us, stop showing a polar bear on an ice floe. No one cares. <laughs> Start talking about health in communities. That's what people care about. Um, <clears throat> and that seemed right to me. I think we sort of got off to a wrong foot there, uh, focused on you know uh, sea level rise, as important as that is. Um, and I personally have had a focus on pandemics for probably five or ten years. When I do these talks with people, I always say, you know, I think we each have a climate boogeyman. Like, what's your climate boogeyman? I mean, some people are really concerned about forest fires or some people are really concerned about, um, about sea level rise, you know. But for me, it's always been pandemics. Uh, I met with a senior official in the Vancouver government um, and um, who works on this issue. And I said to him, you know, do you think I'm wrong? Because I did talk to some climate epidemiologists a year or two ago. And I said, listen, I'm, my, I think my boogeyman is pandemics. And they said, oh, no, don't be silly. We have this under control. You know, first world health systems were so on it. And so I said this to the Vancouver, uh, city of Vancouver head of adaptation. 
And he said, oh my God, they're totally wrong. <laughs> he said, you know, when a flight arrives at the Vancouver airport, we have no way of knowing where anyone goes after that. There's no mechanisms for that. And so uh, this was about a year ago. Um, and so for me, pandemics are as sure a sign of climate change as sea level rise or forest fires. And now we're experiencing a pandemic. So is there a connection between COVID and climate change? That becomes a question. Um, and I would say, I would argue that um, there is, while we can't necessarily directly say there, you know, that COVID is caused by climate change, what we do know is that uh, we think it came from a bat. We know that the encroachment of human populations on bat habitat has led bats to move into other areas that they didn't inhabit previously. So it's brought them closer into closer contact with humans. It's brought them into closer contact with livestock. So there is something about uh, just the, you know, it's, it's in many ways, I think probably, I guess as a global population, you could say that COVID is the first and most profound teaching we've had so far of the limitations of nature to just accept and absorb our consumptive exploitive lifestyle. And <clears throat> through the bats, <laughs> Mother Nature has said to us, enough is enough. This is your warning shot over the bow. <laughs> Be warned. We have have to change things. It's very interesting um, to think about it in those terms. Uh, I've talked to a number of people that say, well, you know, in many ways, COVID has been the cause of so much suffering, but it could have been much worse. In many ways, if you look at this as Mother Nature giving us the warning, then it's a pretty gentle warning. You know, stay home, stay in your cozy home if you're lucky enough to have one. Stay with your family and your loved ones. Just stop and slow down. That's really what I have mostly heard. I think a lot of us have heard. And that is a very gentle, loving nudge from Mother Nature to reconsider. Because we are on the edge of collapse, as you said, you know, about deep adaptation. What is that? So I've had this feeling in my bones, as I know many Cortesians have, for some for much longer than me, <clears throat> that we cannot continue this way. And of course, let me reframe to say we know that intellectually. I mean, intellectually, we've been talking about sustainability since 1992 and the Brentland Commission report. But we haven't sort of taken on what that really means. Like we talk about sustainability as if it's a choice. Like we, we've been sitting around for the last 20 odd years, 30 odd years, as a human civilization saying, what do you think about sustainability? Should we go for that or not? How much sustainability do we want? It's kind of an absurd conversation. Like if it's not sustainable, it will collapse. Inherent in the notion of sustainability is the notion of collapse. Because if it is not sustainable, it will collapse. You're piling more and more and more weight on a table with legs that are getting weaker and weaker and unstable and getting kicked out from under the table. At some point, collapse is inevitable. And so... I believe we are in the early stages of collapse. Uh, 
maybe about a year and a half ago, I came across a, um, an academic from the UK, uh, Jem Bendel, who um, has been talking about collapse and um, has started a, he wrote a paper called Deep Adaptation, and you can find it online. If you Google Deep Adaptation, um, you'll find it there. And he was one of the first academics to come out and say, you know what, I don't think it's about sustainability. He's a, he was actually a prof on sustainability. Um, and he tells a great story. He was getting ready to give a talk, um, and he's a sustainability prof. So it's like, here's the metrics you need to look at around energy consumption, around water, et cetera, et cetera. And he was getting ready to give this talk, and he had a dark moment of the soul, if you will, where he said, hang on, I don't actually think this is true. In fact, I think it's bullshit. I think we're so past this that this stuff that I've been talking about for 20 years, it's too late. It's not true. And so he searched his soul and decided to put his career on the line and go to a talk where he was meant to be a keynote on sustainability and instead gave a keynote saying he thinks on most factors, in most ways, it is already too late and we need to start talking about adaptation, about deep adaptation, which is how do we plan for systems to collapse? How do we plan on a physical level, uh, on an emotional and spiritual level? You know, so on a physical level, for instance, we might talk about nuclear plants. If we have a pandemic that, God forbid, wipes out 90% of humanity, what happens to a lot of our technologies and nuclear plants? There is zero kind of, of that type of thinking going on in governments today. Uh, how do we plan for food systems that may collapse? How do we, uh, <clears throat> how do we, if, if you stop sort of, you know, convincing yourself that it will be okay and actually take on, okay, what if it's not okay? Then what happens? Then you do come up with a, different series of questions. Uh, Jem worked with his partner, Katie, and I am working with them now. I went to meet them to try and understand what they were talking about, and I work as a facilitator in deep adaptation. And in fact, they're very excited about uh, the four paths and how they can apply to help people with deep adaptation. So I'm going to be doing some training of their trainers around the four paths that we talked about earlier. They define uh, collapse as... Uh, they say, and I'm quoting, societal collapse, we are re when we say societal collapse, we are referring to the uneven ending of our current means of sustenance, shelter, security, pleasure, identity, and meaning. Others may prefer the term societal breakdown when referring to the same process. Uh, so I think that's a, you know, we're, and, and that it will be uneven, that it won't, it's not that, um, you know, in 2021, everything will collapse. It's looking at where our systems are most frail. We've seen through the coronavirus, which is an, another way in which the coronavirus has been a helpful warning. We've seen the fragility of our global supply chains. And there is a lot of talk now in climate circles about COVID recovery plans and how we can make sure that they are at once climate resilient plans so that when we are building the new systems post 
this mini collapse, if you will, that they are systems that are designed to take into account increasingly severe climate impacts over the coming decade. There was a report that that uh, I just got this morning, actually, from from Jem Bendel, um, uh, which um, uh, the in which a, gr- a large group of academics say, quote, the collapse of civilization is now the most likely outcome. Not the, not the uh, extinction of the human species. That's a whole different conversation. And I am not a believer in that. I know there's people out there that talk about that. Uh, but, you know, we are, we have some resilience as a species. I think there's no evidence now to say that we would go extinct. But there certainly is enough evidence to talk about the collapse of our society. We're 7 billion people. Rex Weiler talks a lot about overshoot and that we've just gone into overshoot. Uh, Bill Reese is an is a, uh, ecologist, economist from University of British Columbia. He was the guy that came up with the concept of the ecological footprint. And in the last year, he has been working with ecologists and economists around the world to ask the question, what is a sustainable human population on Earth? And they have come to an agreement that it's somewhere between half a billion and one and a half billion. So let's say it's a billion. We're at seven billion now. So that is a pretty stark notion to think about how we get from here to there. Um, uh, the um, report that came out just today the reason that they're saying that civilization is most likely in the early stages of collapse is they track, uh, I think it's 14, 15 indicators that are tipping points. We've all known the notion of tipping points. So they track 15 climate tipping points. And this is really important. The idea that we're going to talk about how many degrees we're at, whether at 1.1 or 1. Point, you know, and when we get to 1.5 or when we get to 2, that is such a crude and uh, it's such a crude measure for what we're talking about and most people are moving away from that now to looking at a more systems approach of tipping points so the nine tipping points that they say that are past the place of being able to mitigate are the melting of the Greenland ice sheet fires in the boreal droughts in the Amazon the melting of the West Arctic West Antarctic ice sheet the melting of the East Antarctic ice sheet, uh, the coral reef die-offs, Russian permafrost, Antarctic sea ice, and the and and the Atlantic circulation of winds and currents. So those are nine of the fifteen that uh, this group of international scientists is tracking that say they're now they've now gone too far, which means that given the carbon that's already in the atmosphere. You, they are going to trip into their next system, their next uh, natural evolution, and that there's still some, there's another six that we still maybe can control, but that in some way, that in in various, in just practical scientific terms, because the carbon you put in today in the atmosphere hasn't, will not have manifest all of its impacts on Earth for the next approximately 20 years, depending on if it's in methane or what form it's in, um, then there's a certain amount of warming that's just baked in now. And they measure it with how likely could we, in this report, they talk about 
how long would it take to get our energy systems uh, into line, for instance, if we decided today that we're going to phase out renewables? So they have modeling that shows, you know, that's going to take 30 years or, what, you know, all these different types of models that say, look at all the carbon inputs. How long would it take to bring them down and then factor that with the resilience of the system that's being impacted and that's where they come to. So, you know, it's kind of wild because, you know, it's, I feel like we're in some kind of collective denial because these are the most esteemed <laughs> scientists in the world telling us that the most likely outcome is the collapse of civilization. And when I hear it, I kind of think, well, that's nice. You know, where is my margarita? Like, I just don't, we don't, ha it's very difficult to be able to take it on. Kind of like the five stages of grief and uh, of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about in dealing with patients that have been given a, uh, a fatal diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis, that we go into this denial because you can't really take it on. Um, uh, I read some great quote about the most, um, the most, one of the most intriguing qualities of human nature is that somehow we all believe that we aren't going to die in some way, um, you know. And there's, and that's certainly true. It's very difficult to imagine one's own death. No doubt why the Buddhists have it meditating on, meditating on. <laughs> ask us to meditate on that on a regular basis. But I feel like we are being told this is what's happening now. And the sooner that we can take that on and really take it on, do the emotional, psychological, spiritual work to say, okay, this is end times in the world that we have known. It's about letting go. How quickly can I let go now of what I have known and sit with what might be? And, you know, as humans, we do not like uncertainty. We do not like the unknown. Rebecca Solnit is an amazing author who's written a big, number of books related to this topic. One is called Hope in the Dark. Um, and she talks about the fact that we, dis we detest uncertainty so much that we would rather tell ourselves a story of apocalypse than sit with the uncertainty that is real. For example, she says, you know when your partner is late for dinner and you think, oh God, I wonder if they've been in a car accident. You know, instead of the fact that they're late for dinner quite often and usually they're working late or they're <laughs> talking to their friends, you know, at the coffee shop or at the bar. Um, but we, we do tend to tell ourselves any story to get to certainty. So this links us back to hope because I don't, I don't, I'm not telling a story of certainty of an apocalypse, but I think we can point to drastic, drastic changes in the way that we live. I think those do seem inevitable. And is it an awakening or is it an apocalypse? Well, it depends in large part on how we respond, how we each respond as individuals, as families and communities. I love the way you talk about it. It One of the things that really strikes me about Jim Bendel's work and so I have this environmental background, and my partner um, was one of the earliest people to work with cities about how to do large-scale mitigation plans for climate. And 
I really, until you had me read Jim Bendel, I sort of felt like, okay, I have nothing left in the climate movement. I couldn't take another bit of information about sea level rise. And I've, I felt like it's a whole movement in some ways built on denial because I feel like Jim Bendel. <laughs> like we're deep in the middle of collapse and I want to have real conversations. And what I love about what he talks about is how if that we're already watching our more vulnerable societies um, break down and our more vulnerable communities within societies break down. And if we let's skip over the terminology and whether we agree about what's going on or all of that, and let's just get to the place where we can all have a common conversation, which is around what are the things that we want to most protect in our society? What do we love? What do we want to make sure continues through collapse? And I, I feel like that is a real common denominator that people can come together and have a role in this conversation from that place. It doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't sort of matter what you believe in. We can still talk about the things that are most important to us. I'm wondering what you're seeing out there as models or examples of people finding things that are worth coming together around to try to save. Right. Well, there's a few things there. And one is I wanted to just pick up on it's something we can come together on. And it absolutely is. I mean, especially on Cortez, right? I mean, I've met many of you who came here in the 90s because of peak oil or, you know, I think we are, those of us that have chosen this strange little rock to call our homes, maybe some of us have in common a sensitivity that we are a bit sensitive to uh, or aware of some of the forces in society that others aren't aware of because of the distractions that are put before us in terms of media and consumption. And whatever is the gift likely through the form of a wound that we've uh, experienced that let us feel some of the pain of the world and be sensitive to what might come. It's brought us here. So I think there is a lot of interest in how do we live small scale in community. And that's such so exciting from a potential point of view. But I want to challenge one thing you said, Amanda, because you said, you know, no matter how you think about it, it brings us all together. And We've been in some conversations together on the island about climate resilience, and this is work that Climate Hope has been generously granted uh, a a small grant from the regional district uh, to facilitate some planning about how we think about community resilience. So I really want to talk about that. It's really exciting. Um, But I first want to talk about the importance of talking about climate change, because I feel like It just has to be, we have to talk about climate change. We can't just talk about social collapse and therefore what? Because linking to this moment where we're seeing the the race riots uh, emerging in the U.S., protests everywhere around the world, most of the the protests, of course, are are not riots. They're rather protests. And I feel like one thing that I'm learning, I'm doing my best to learn as a white middle-aged ally named Karen, uh, doing everything, not everything I can, I could do more. I'm trying to do what I can to learn. 
And there is a phrase in the Black Lives Matter movement, which is that silence is complicity. And so while I understand that that climate can be a divisive issue, and even on this island, I will say that's true. I have been warned by friends and allies to talk a little bit less about climate change because it causes division. Um, And I say hell no to that. I say I am so going to talk about climate change because not to do that is exactly what we're being, is, is exactly a form of collusion, is exactly a form of perpetuating it. So I think we have to understand that the climate change threat is real. We have to know what it's caused by. We can't, it's not even enough to agree that the climate is changing, but we don't know why, which I have heard some people on the island say. Because if we don't know why, then we can't create appropriate mitigation strategies. Mitigation, of course, is the part of climate change um, about how, about to do with how many carbon inputs we put into the environment. So I think actually we have to have the difficult conversations now to say this is 100% human-caused, carbon-caused, and then we can go forward to develop mitigation and adaptation plans. So that's point one. Point two is uh, I have been with Director Anderson's encouragement. Director Anderson is great. I think that's a name from um, uh, one of those science fiction shows, maybe uh, Battlestar Galactica or something. It's so good. Anyway, Director Anderson has uh, been encouraging me to think about how we as an island community can do both the emotional and uh, spiritual resilience planning, but also the physical resilience planning. Uh, So I have been looking into that, and through Climate Hope, we are going to do the work in the community to try and develop a process for Cortez to develop a climate resilience plan, climate strategic plan, if you will. A lot of municipalities are doing this. So across Canada, a recent survey showed that 57% of communities in Canada have already started adaptation planning. They've either initiated it or they're in some progress of it, process of it. This is not the state, the, the case for the regional district. For our regional district, we have done nothing. Um, so there are three uh, progressive mayors, they all happen to be women, um, the mayors of Duncan, Tofino, and Victoria, that have initiated their own process. So they have partnered with UVic and the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions to create a independent quasi-governmental process to look at how we could start real mitigation and adaptation planning for Vancouver Island and the surrounding islands. They say that we should be looking at, uh, they've sent out a questionnaire. We're participating um, in that. Our uh, area is participating in that in that grouping um, through uh, someone from Gold River or Tassis, and nobody's keeping in touch with it. Um, but they have put forward a list of priorities and policies that they're surveying all of the Vancouver Island and island municipalities for interest in. So that includes things like amendments to zonings or land use bylaws to adapt to climate change impacts, um, floodplain regulations, emergency management planning, urban forest management to adapt to climate change impacts, 
transportation infrastructure, of course, is huge. Uh, stormwater infrastructure, food security, uh, inspection policy for infrastructure to identify damage for extreme weather, water use and, rest and restrictions. So they've got quite a good comprehensive list and they're going to do their best and um, we're excited to participate in this in some way to figure out which policies Cortez needs to be looking at. And it all needs to start with an analysis of both our mitigation and adaptation profiles as an island community, meaning everything starts with mitigation. How can we not be worsening the problem? Because to talk about adaptation without mitigation makes no sense. How do we know we can't adapt to while we're still pouring uh, oil on the fire? Uh, we need to think about how we are as a community we are contributing carbon to the environment. So that most likely looks like transportation, uh, driving your car, um, and propane, guessing that most houses are electric. I don't know the role of wood stoves. Um, but basically, we need to see what our outputs are. Then we need to figure out how to adapt. I'm guessing that transportation might be our major output. Um, so could we look at the electrifica electrification of a little public transit bus or could we, you know, what are the solutions there? There are some. So we look from a mitigation point of view and then we have to say, okay, what about adaptation? So the advice I've gotten from some uh, people who are experts in adaptation, of which I am not one, is that for a community as small as ours, the way to go would be to look for other small rural communities that have done this and model ourselves on their plan because the issues are very similar. It may be true that there are even some islands that have done this. I'm hopeful that maybe some islands in the San Juan might have done this. We're just starting this research now to understand who is at what scale of planning. But, you know, the, what we're thinking about is let's look around for other plans from small communities, figure out the kind of categories, if you will, the buckets that the plan goes into. So for instance, infrastructure like roads. Okay, that's the thing we have to look at. And I have already started looking at it. And there are one or two places on the island that the roads will wash out with current sea level rise. So we need to identify those and plan. Okay, so we need to build a bridge there. We need to identify when is that likely to happen. Okay, so that's an infrastructure piece that needs to happen in, for instance, 10 years probably fine for 10 years but we need to start knowing that now so we need to plan out the buckets both in focus areas meaning things like infrastructure air quality fire risk food security and then we need to create a matrix if you will of how those things intersect with time so which of those is very important to attend to in the next two years five years ten years 50 years all the way up to 2100. That's uh, what most climate plans do. And of course, it gets vague the further out you go. But there's no point in putting in a solution now that's not going to work in, tw in 2030 or 2050. And 2030, God help us, is 10 years away. And in 2030, uh, pretty much all the scientists agree, doesn't really matter who you talk to, that we will be past all tipping points. So this actually is the decisive decade it is now that we can rein things in, but we have to act 
so quickly. And again, we're acting so quickly to create a very different future for our children and their children. It will not be the world that we see now. It will be a different world. And what it will look like uh, depends a lot on what we all do in the next little while. At Climate Hope, people, uh, I talk a lot about uh, scale and impact because people, it's so overwhelming. Oh my God, you know, how am I supposed to think about, you know, global sea level and it's all, it's a huge global uh, beast. But we talk about the fact that scale is kind of irrelevant when you're thinking about these things because there is no single person that is doing quote unquote enough. It's not like Al Gore who, you know, arguably has been one of the most powerful figures in the world on climate change. He doesn't go home at night and put his feet up and say, huh, did that. I did my part. Now I'm done. You know, it's just massive. And so there is no such thing as not enough. And, and therefore, anything that we can do is helpful. And I think it's about listening for what we are called to do and contributing. And it's also true that nothing is too late. There is no such thing as not enough, and there is no such thing as too late, because everything we do now has an impact. We can either accelerate this collapse and have it even be even more chaotic and burn up more areas of inhabitable surface area of the earth, or it can be less so. So yes, it's too late to say, to, to say there will be no climate change. The climate is changing. We are all seeing that. And it's not too late for us to think about how and what we can do. Uh, I heard it said recently that, you know, the best time to start this work would have been 30 years ago, and the second best time is now. Can you talk a little bit about why this matters to, for instance, a black man in the States um, it's something I think that's on all of our minds right now as we watch a lot of protests, but also a lot of um, breakdown happen in the U.S. layered on top of the breakdowns happening th- because of the pandemic. A lot of what's going on in the U.S. is at this point is from years of racial inequality. Um, and I, how do you make this relevant to someone who is in many ways fighting for their freedoms um, in a fundamental way right now? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. So, you know, starting from the meta down to the individual, at the meta level, I would say that it's certainly true that both climate change and the racial inequity, racial and, and, and economic inequities, are symptoms of racialized capitalism. We are living in a toxic economic system and therefore a toxic social system. As humans, we have let our economic systems define our social systems. And this idea of racialized capitalism, I think, is really important. We've talked for quite a while in the progressive community about the problems of capitalism, but it's not simply capitalism. It is racialized capitalism, which is a term I learned from my American Black Lives Matter friends, and I'm very grateful to them, because our capitalism is built on the exploitation of people of color as a plan, 
you know, if I'm here creating my business plan, I'm, I'm actually dependent on lower labor inputs, exploitation of uh, people of color, health benefits, the lack of health benefits, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> We've built systems and companies based on the assumption that we can continue to exploit people of color and people who are marginalized or racialized. So that is the very same, uh, very same machine, as it were, that has brought us to the brink on climate, and now you're seeing it brought us, bring us to the brink on race. And so that's kind of at the higher level. On an individual level, I think it's, it's very hard. I read a great article this week by a climate adaptation specialist um, in Chicago, which is a black American woman. And she said, look, I, the reason I'm, I'm a climate adaptation specialist, this is what I do. And so I am meant to be currently working on a health and safety plan for future pandemics um, that might come from climate, but I can't do my work because I'm in the streets protesting race. <laughs> so her point is that these social problems simply delay and exacerbate um, these climate problems. And certainly I've seen that to be true in working with, uh, I do some limited work um, or have done with provincial and, and federal government in Canada. And what you see is they are just, you know, people in government are people with 24 hours in a day, like all the rest of us. And they have limited budgets, even though they're vast, they're limited, they're prescribed for certain things. So along comes the pandemic. And what was their work around figuring out how to electrify the power grid in Canada, around how to get clean water to indigenous communities, uh, around how to work at the UN to try and bring about uh, something more closer to a 1.5 degree outcome. All of that work goes to the wayside because the government is completely focused on pandemics, on this pandemic. Um, and now they're focused on, now there's this issue of the countries starting to fall apart around the question of race. So all of this complicates, exacerbates, delays our focus on how we can create a livable planet for our children. So it's a complicated web. And, you know, I don't know that if I was a black man or woman in America right now, I don't, I think I actually, I would be in, I too, like the climate adaptation specialist I spoke about in Chicago, I would put my work to the side. And in this moment, I would be in the streets and then I would come back to it. And I would be, I have learned a lot myself in the past just few weeks um, learning as much as I can on the race issues and how, how that learning informs how we think about climate adaptation and mitigation because they are interwoven and they are part of the same toxic systemic system of racialized capitalism. And will you just drive home that this is not just the U.S., right? I mean, this is also Canada. We have also uh, created an economy um, that is reliant on many of the same ideas and principles as that in the U.S. Will you talk a little bit more about um, why we should not give ourselves, say, free pass just because we're sitting up here in Canada? 
That is a really important point. And I have gone on a deep inquiry in the last few days even um, to try and understand the issues in Canada more. You know that Canada did have slaves before we were called Canada. Upper and Lower Canada did have slaves. Two-thirds of the slaves were Indigenous peoples. One-third were Black. Two-thirds were Indigenous people. If you go back and you look at these ads, you can find online, it's one Google search, ads for slave sales. We were sitting in our living room reading them last night. They'll say things like, wench for sale, 24 year old, comes with six month old infant at the buyer's choice. That was one ad that we read aloud last night in our family group. And it's a lot to take it on because we have been living in this Canadian reality of I was taught as a child that we didn't have slaves, uh, that it was not part of the Canadian history. And that is that is incorrect. In fact, it is. And then, of course, you fast forward that to today, uh, where the pov- where we have such disproportionate uh, poverty and health impacts in uh, Indigenous communities. There is an organization in Vancouver called Hogan's Alley, and it uh, is working to get a little memorial um, put up, and it is a black community service organization. And Hogan's Alley was a street that went between um, off of Maine, uh, between Prior and Union, I believe, sort of what's now Chinatown, and that was where the black community um, had their base in Vancouver. And it was an incredibly vibrant community. There's some great stuff online. If you look at the documentaries about all the uh, black artists that came up to sing there, um, Jimi Hendrix's grandmother lived there, Aretha Franklin uh, came up and performed there. Just an amazing, amazing, vital community. And it was bulldozed to build the Georgia Viaduct. So we have these stories as Canadians that, you know, Americans built housing projects and Americans, you know, built bulldozed inner city uh, ethnic neighborhoods. But it is totally true in Canada. And the relatively small community, black community in Vancouver is in part, in large part, due to the bulldozing of Hogan's Alley. And that many people, including the Hendricks family, moved to Seattle as a result. Um, And that's one reason why we have a quite small black community in Vancouver. But we do, and it's very active, and I've been lucky to meet some some folks. Um, And I feel like anything that we as settlers on this indigenous territory, um, as white allies can do uh, to help our, our friends or create space or donate or just learn, I mean, really just learning, uh, I have been recently reading the book White Fragility, and it's been super helpful. It's on my been reading on my reading list for some time, and finally, uh, with this level of chaos, I've gotten to prioritize it, uh, and it's so helpful for me to understand. It's written actually by a white uh, woman who is a trainer in race and diversity issues, um, and she she uh, talks about how, you know, whiteness is a concept, only a concept, that wins wherever it shows up. I thought, oh, well, that's really true, isn't it? 
Um, anyway, so there's a now I'm sure in your Facebook feeds and in your friend groups, there's a lot of resources that are being publicized now um, for us to do the work as non-indigenous uh, non-indigenous people, as white people, um, to really understand what is really happening. There's a there's a major demand of the Black Lives Matter community, which is defund the police. And the first time I heard it, I thought, what does that mean, defund the police? How could that be? Um, it's related to the movement around prison abolition. And I now have been in conversation and doing my reading and understand defund the police, and I am all for it. My One of my friends says to me, Okay, well, name one thing the police force is doing well. What do the police do well? Well, do they, you know, what's the major thing they're called for when there's some kind of armed um, or some kind of threat? Are they doing a good job of coming and de-escalating those threats? No. Uh, two of the black Canadians that died in the past month, uh, were both of, two of them were, calls that were mental health calls someone called uh the police to say this there's an episode this person's freaking out whatever it was um and the police came now why wouldn't a mental health person come why wouldn't when someone is having a mental health crisis you call a mental health expert to come or when there's a violent inter violent uh, issue why wouldn't you bring someone that understands violence de-escalation, that that's their principal training, instead of their principal training being leaning on someone's neck to, to strangle them. So I think it's really fascinating. In Vancouver, 21% of the city budget goes to the police force. In Toronto, I think it's closer to 40. And the LA Police Department this week agreed to cut the budget, cut their police department budget by, I think it's about 10%. It's a lot of money. Um, and I mean, 10% is only 10%, but it's a start. And in Minneapolis, where the race riots started, there is a motion from council to close down their police force and start from scratch. And the rationale put forward by city council is that the institution is just too rotten. It's just too far gone and reforms, there have been an attempt at reforms for the past decade. They have obviously failed miserably and so let's shut it down and start from scratch and say what are the needs that we're currently filling with the police force terribly and how else can we fill those needs in a way that doesn't escalate violence in a way that is more tailored to the actual needs as opposed to this institution which has a very effective union lobbying for it uh, which has become increasingly militarized I mean, I guess as Cortez, we are a bit of a model. Here we are, a policeless thousand to three thousand person community, and I really can't think of a time when I would need the police on Cortez. I uh, thank you so much for so many of those points. I really appreciate you talking a little bit more about the way that Canadians and as particularly white uh, non-Indigenous Canadians can take a little bit more ownership. Uh, it's one of the things I grew up in the States. I am a white woman and I grew up in a family where we were not all white. My brother is a black man and we grew up in the States and he's living there now. 
And I, one of the things that I've really struggled with coming to Canada, which is largely such an easier place to be um, as a black man. My brother was here too for a while. And there's a lot more safety built in in some ways. But one of the things that I have really struggled with and noticed as a white woman who's only gotten to see the experience of what it means to be racialized through the eyes of someone I love is that in the U.S., people like me who are who are white and non-indigenous feel really culpable for the society as a whole and our relationship to race. And when I came to Canada, I noticed that people do not that people here do not feel like this directly has to do with them. They, many people do not know that, for instance, Canada had slavery. And even way more than that, Canada took part in the same devastating land grabs um, from indigenous people. We brought over minority groups to build our railways, to build our cities. We did all sorts of things that acted on a particular kind of power and whiteness, as you said. And yes, it's hard to feel guilty. I'm not advocating guilt, even though I do have a Catholic background. And so, you know, guilt does have a place. Um, It's more that I think it helps in some ways if we do take a little bit of culpability or at least a little bit of ownership that the world is not going to change without every single one of us seeing that it's our part to reach beyond our comfort zone. Um, So that really... Uh, resonated with me. And I thank you for bringing that up. And I want to take a moment to say you're listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Community Radio on the web at cortezradio.ca. We are so lucky to have with us today in the studio, Karen Mahone Carrington, who is the founder of Climate Hope and also just a really smart, inspiring incredible woman and and uh and so karen chose a a special song for us let me tell you about that song so we were just talking about the role of uh well actually we're talking about our culpability as members of white society and our exploitation of indigenous and black people in canada and i feel very grateful through my climate work and my work at climate hope to have been uh, working very closely alongside members of the Tsleil-Waututh and uh, Squamish nations uh, in Vancouver. And we, I spent several years working on the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, which we now call the Trans Mountain Pipeline, since the Canadian government bought it for $4.5 billion, and the bill is well now over $10 billion, um, what it's going to cost to build it if it should ever get built. It's kind of our one of our front lines of climate change infrastructure in Canada, probably our biggest front line. And the uh, particularly the Tsleil-Waututh, because they and and the Squamish both, they're the nations that have territory along Burrard Inlet where the pipeline would go. And so we met with them. I was the international campaigns director for Stand on Earth. We met with them and said uh, about three years ago, and said, you know, we. Basically, we have this organization, we have these resources. We want to follow your strategy. What would you have us do? We have all kinds of strategies and plans, and but really, we want to understand and follow your wisdom. And they said, what we want to do is we want to build a traditional longhouse in the way of the pipeline. 
right where it would go because there's a law in Canada that uh, if the territory is, of course, in British Columbia, all the territory is unseated, but if it is occupied, then in then the courts will rule so far 100% of the time if it's occupied that it goes to the Indigenous nation. So there is a process of reoccupation of Indigenous lands. So when you see these protests that are building like the tiny houses um, or um, up in Gitsan territory, um, the Unistoten, part what they're doing that, they're put, putting those structures in the way because the law is playing out in such a way that if the land is occupied, um, then it's current occupation, and that strengthens their case for title much more strongly. So the Slaywood said to us, "We want to build a pi- we want to build a longhouse uh, in the way of the pipeline." And so we were very grateful for this direction and worked with them to do everything we could to bring our resources to bear to do that. Uh, and in that process, I was educated and humbled and. Uh, I should say that they what they wanted to do with the with the longhouse was not just have it be a physical infrastructure to block the pipeline, but for it to be a place of worship, a place to invoke the power of the sacred, and to organize protests. And they don't really see much difference between those two things. How we pull on our sacred connection, our lineage, and bring that power to give it voice, to say what needs to be said in this moment. So one of the things that we did most often, we would we had a camp there, we would you know be there at 6 in the morning and 11 at night, and um, is sing the Women's Warrior song. So uh, this is a beautiful song that became in many ways the anthem, and still is, um, for a lot of the indigenous-led uh, uh, anti-tar sands movement. So it's the Women's Warrior song, this one, this is a version sung by uh, Takaya Blakey, um, who's a young indigenous indigenous woman. Here we go. Uh, before we actually go, um, I'm going to remind you that you are welcome to call in to CKTZ 89.5 FM. This is the Folk University Radio Show. If you want to call while the song is playing... You can ask a question of Karen. I don't put you right on. This is a good time to call because when the song is playing, then we can actually stop, uh, you know, running the microphone and, sh- and having everything that we say broadcast. So if you would like to call in, that is 250-935-0200. We welcome your calls to ask questions about climate hope or to talk a little bit about what you're doing in your life around adaptation. All right, here we go. Hello, my name is Sakaya Blaney. I'm from the Tla'aman Nation. My ancestral name is Jigajimu. It's given to me by my grandfather. Um, it, today is uh, International Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. I raise my hands to everyone standing in this room who is wearing red. I traveled a long way from my territories and fortunately did not pack any, so I, I appreciate the visibility that uh, you folks are bringing. I think in celebrating biological diversity, in uh, celebrating indigenous protected areas and, and um, the, the resurgence of that relationship between our land and uh, us indigenous people who belong to it, 
we also need to be talking about our life givers. Uh, not just our original life giver, Mother Earth, but the life givers of our communities, our women. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be sharing the Women's Warrior Song. Um, at the end, um, we raise our fists in the air uh, as, as a reminder for the missing and murdered Indigenous women who are treated as disposable, like our land, when in fact they are what sustains our life. Um, and quickly before I do that, I also do want to acknowledge that um, our, our women are on the front lines when it comes to land degradation, when it comes to pollution, when it comes to industry um, coming into our territories. Uh, they are on the front lines. Um, the violence against our land is warfare against our women. Um, so this is the Women's Warrior Song, and I would like to invite uh, any women in the room and any folks who wish to be standing uh, alongside me at this moment and sing alongside me uh, to do so. Judge Yafich. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio on the World Wide Web at CortezRadio.ca. And today is the Folk University Folk U Talk Show. And we are really lucky to have on the air with us 
Karen Mahone Carrington. We've been talking about Climate Hope, both the organization which she founded and the concept and idea of what may seem almost oxymoronic. Karen, can we talk a little bit more about grief? And if we, I think for a lot of people, part of what is hard when we think about societal collapse or what or future pandemics this pandemic the times that we're living through raising our children bringing grandchildren future generations into these times that what often people get stuck on are the big feelings that come up around that and for some people I think it's easier to just tune out right one more episode of Netflix as you said one more drink you know one more item that we buy uh, online. So talk about how, you know, how do we go deeper into our grief around this and feel things a little bit more in a constructive way? Well, first of all, I think it's really important that we do let ourselves feel the pain. I mean, it is devastating. I'm sure that many of you have seen the footage coming out of the U.S. I have wept at some point. Uh, in most of the last few days. In fact, I think I have wept probably at least every other day since the pandemic happened. And um, I saw my son Aiden uh, um, near the beginning of the pandemic and we were speaking at a social distance and he doesn't live with me and I started crying and he looked sort of distressed and wanted to help me and I said, no, no, honey, I'm, it's so, I'm good with crying because I have trained myself to grieve. I've trained myself to let these feelings move through me because there are essentially two choices. Either you learn to open your heart to the pain and let it move through you, let it be transformed through the process of your own attention, or you harden your heart to it. You refuse to feel it or you numb your heart. You know, we numb our heart. We numb ourselves constantly with busyness, uh, with distraction, I mean, I don't know how many people, dear friends of mine, including myself for some of the time, that have said, oh, I'm busier than ever during this pandemic. I'm just so busy. And I think, oh, my good Lord. I mean, that is a choice. If there is a message that Guy is speaking to us now, it is stop. It is slow down. And yet we can just get busier and busier and busier and busier until we can't attend to the fundamental profundity of what's happening in this time and so I, th I think that the grief work is really really super important there's a Mary Oliver quote that I really love which is someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness it took me years to understand that this too was a gift a box full of darkness was a gift and indeed there is a gift in it because it is an invitation to feel the pain so that we can heal. Now, you can't let yourself be completely overwhelmed by it. You need to figure, you need to be able to open to it, be with it, and and then and then also be able to move away from it. One of my teachers is a rabbi. He's recently passed. He was the wisdom chair at Naropa University, Rabbi Zalman Schachter. We had a mutual acquaintance who had a terminal diagnosis. And he said, the most important thing 
is to live part of each day as if you don't have the diagnosis. So yes, you do. You need to accept it, and the sooner you can accept it, the better. But you need to not let it define you. You need to not let the darkness of the negativity define you and cover the light of your soul. Because that would be to negate the gift of life itself. So it's a question of how do we titrate ourselves and how do we pendulate? You know, there's all this work coming out now around trauma and how trauma rests in the brain and the body, intergenerational trauma. And a big part of it is this notion of pendulation. The going between the light and the dark is essential to our healing. So how can you pendulate? And my experience is by letting myself cry and letting myself really, really feel the sadness, I equally feel the lightness. It's like the grief composts itself through my system into the basic nutrients for life. And once I've let myself feel the feelings, then I see the lightness all the more. I've studied like many people on this island with numbers of spiritual teachers. And if there is one common teaching, I would say it is that the best lived life is a life with the awareness of death on your shoulder. So that's the titrating, that's the dark and the light, right? Because without an awareness of death, we can take life for granted. So how do we make a space to let ourselves feel the grief and move through it? Adrian Rich, a feminist poet, uh, says, there must be those among us whom can sit, who can sit down and weep and still be counted as warriors. There must be those among us who can sit down and weep and still be counted as warriors. So I am a weeping warrior. I have let myself weep. I have heard strange animal sounds and wondered where they were coming from and realized it was me over the past couple of months, first from COVID and now from the George Floyd uprising. And I feel like it's good work. It's work for the world. It's work to heal the soul of the world. It's work to heal the soul of humanity. And those of us that are lucky enough that we're not under physical threat, that we're not under um, immediate emotional threat, that we can do this work for the collective soul of feeling the grief, I feel like it's a real service and a real tribute. Uh, Martine Prechtel says, grief is a tribute to that which you love. And I feel like that's really true. So how do we, you know, let's talk about, maybe on the island, let's talk about some collective grief circles and some collective uh, rituals. And let's remember that we have to mix that with the, with the celebration, the awe and the life. That's what we were talking about at the beginning, the via negativa and the via positiva. We need to let ourselves feel the grief and need to make space to feel the joy and connection both there was almost an episode a moment there where we were just going to break down into crying but uh-huh. I, <laughs> I pushed them down <laughs> which maybe you don't have to do on community radio probably if there's anywhere where you could safely just sob away on the radio it would be right here on cktz 89.5 fm I think that is a really perfect moment um, for us to to pause. And are there are there 
Karen has a lot that she can continue to offer. Are there last things that you would like to say or um, other kind of goodbye notes that you want to make sure you get in before we go to our gardening segment? Surely, thank you. Um, well, two pieces, one on the emotional, spiritual, and one on the physical. Both aspects of climate adaptation that are critical. On the emotional, spiritual, I, you know, encourage everyone to do this work as much as possible. Climate Hope, if you go to our website, it's climatehope.earth. And I offer a series of programs taking people through these four paths. Um, there's one starting next week. Um, also, uh, there, there's various free offerings. There's one as well uh, that we offer. If you go to the Facebook group, Positive Deep Adaptation, it's about 10,000 people around the world. It's great. Um, it's people that are looking for how to come to terms with societal collapse due to climate change. Positive Deep Adaptation on Facebook. And through there, I offer programs called Death Cafes, where we sit and uh, have a structured conversation about death. Uh, there's also lots of programs. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be offering programs on the four paths through there. There's a lot. There's a number of good offerings through there. So I encourage you to uh, take that on on the um, if you're interested, if it calls to you, on that emotional spiritual adaptation plane. On the plane of physical adaptation, I am looking for people that want to work um, with me on this about how we make um, a strategic plan for the next few years about how we're going to plan for mitigation and adaptation on Cortez. And the idea is there's a number of great projects happening now for instance food security there's some really good initiatives um, coming out of this last grant and aid process uh, Foci is doing amazing things Linnea is doing interesting things there's a lot of good things um, and uh, so we're the idea is that we'll put together a plan and we'll say okay here's what here's here's food security here's infrastructure we'll see what community groups have capacity to deliver in those buckets in those categories and then we'll figure out where are their gaps and how we can try and fill them so that's the attempt um, I'm uh, looking forward to it and and looking for a partnership from um, anybody or organization that want to work together on that how do they reach you if they're interested in learning more and or getting more involved in physical adaptation plans my email is karen at climatehope.earth and if you go to the climatehope.earth website there's an info app that also comes to me um, we have an occasional newsletter if you want to sign up for things that are happening um, that's mostly focused on the larger emotional, spiritual work rather than the physical adaptation work. Um, but on physical adaptation work, you could just uh, email me email me directly. It's really appreciate it, Karen. And there, um, I know there are things ongoing that you also bring to Cortez, and so we will make sure that we make those announcements uh, on the radio as well as we'll uh, put the link in the program notes to climatehope.earth as well so you can follow what is happening with this awesome organization and also in your own home community. 
Karen looks like she might have one other thing she wants to say. Do you? This is the... <laughs> no, I don't. Just thank you for having me and thank you to all the people that chose to make Cortez their home before me. I'm so grateful to be a part of this beautiful community. And we're grateful to have you. Thank you all. Thank you, neighbor, for being here today. And folk, you talk radio. We are going to get a couple moments of music. This is, again, a chance where you can call in to let us know future episodes that you would like to have on Folk University. Uh, awesome, interesting people that you know that you want me to invite on. I've got some exciting things coming up this uh, this month, so I'm, I'm pretty happy to be able to tell you. Next week, we have uh, Haley Newell who's been on a couple of times to come talk about the brain benefits of play and how we can bring more of that into our lives, which feels really appropriate after, after today. A little bit of building up our capacity for both grief and joy. And then I just found out today we are going to get Brian from the Recycling Center here. So all of you, and that is the majority of you who are a little bit confused about what is garbage, where the garbage is going, what you can put in your recycling, stay tuned. Uh, we have an incredible month of fantastic opportunities. But right now, you get to call, ask Maybe even a question of Karen before she slips out the door for our next um, expert person who's going to come talk about gardening and or just give me your ideas. The number is 250-935-0200. Thank you so much for joining us here today on CKTZ. And here's a little music.
a wise, wise man who said it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Than never to have loved. How many times is the truth that you take to be true? Just truth falling apart at the same speed as you? Till it all comes away in a million degrees. And you're just a few pieces of fallen debris. And she's hopeful. I deserved that I wanted somebody I'd mistaken for her. But one look in my eyes, and she knows she was wrong. So she wouldn't look back at me until she was gone. How many times did you give all your loving? Find out it was so far from far from enough. I followed her out into the street in the rain. And the whole world stopped spinning and just went up in flames. And she's hopeful. to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. You are listening to Folk University's Friday Folk You Talk Show, and this is our gardening section where every week I bring 
one of your neighbors in to talk about what they're doing in their garden. I'm very excited to have Tammy Collingwood here today, who is a massage therapist and a clinical herbalist and an avid gardener. Tammy moved here around the same time I did, about four years ago. And I know, Tammy, that you, when you came, had to start a garden entirely from scratch. This speaks, I think, to a lot of people right now who are just getting into gardening because they're becoming more aware of how uh, how maybe vulnerable our food systems are out here on this little rock. So can you talk uh-huh. a little bit about how you got started and what you did to, to begin? Sure. Thanks, Amanda. And... Um Thanks for inviting me. I feel really honored that you would ask me. Um, And uh, yeah, the garden is really exciting right now. Everything's kind of exploding and flowers are blooming. And um, it's really nice to see because when we came here about four years ago, we were really starting from scratch. So we were starting with um, a pretty big broom patch that was about half acre. And so we had had to pull all that broom up and then we had to clear a few trees to make a little bit more space for our veggie gardens and um, yeah so we really did start from the beginning and one of the things that we really tried to take a little bit of time to do was to really observe where the sun was what position it was in and where would be our spots where we would plant our sun loving vegetables and some of our different herbs and whatnot and um, yeah and what about your soil well we're living on a bit of a slope and uh, the upper area is really sandy and rocky and I think that's really common here on Cortez and so what we did instead of doing raised beds is we dug down trenches and started filling the trenches in with nutrients and just layering upon layer upon layer. So I think we started with seaweeds and we added some horse manure that we got from one of our neighbors and some soil from the lower half of our uh, property and uh, mixed it all up and let it sit there for a while and sort of um, naturalize to to the area. So um, that became really good. We were able to plant in that right away, and we had a really good garden in the first summer that we were were here. So um, it doesn't have to take a long time to get some guard beds going, just a little bit of muscle and some trips down to the beach to get some seaweeds and some help from some neighbors and yeah some of us takes a little longer (laughs) but it's more inspiring to (laughs) I'm a little obsessed with gardening I think and um, I uh, was really wanting to get um, fruit trees and some of my um, medicinal plants into the ground right away um, so that they would be ready for harvesting in a few years so and so you talk about being obsessed but had you gardened before did you have experience and sort of know what you're doing or have you been learning as you go um so I have been gardening and growing food for almost 30 years now I started in the lower mainland in the Vancouver area um just in my backyard and at the time I had had um 
an accident, a big physical trauma, um, where I had a bit of a head injury. And so I wasn't really able to, to do what I normally was doing. And I had moved into a house where there had been a garden before, and I'd never really gardened before. And um, you could sort of see the outline of the garden beds where they were before. And I decided then that I would plant a garden. And I really believe that it was um, a big healing process for me during that time. Um, I was able to just be in the garden with the plants, taking care of the plants and puttering, not really with a plan and just doing it really intuitive. And um, yeah, so that's how I got into gardening. And then ever since then, I just sort of everywhere I go, I plant a garden and there's been little gardens and big gardens. And um, I moved to Victoria in the early 2000s and was gardening there for for quite a long time, for about 15 years. Uh, My partner at the time and I, we actually rented a five-acre organic farm or piece of a part of a farm to grow vegetables organically. And, um, you know, we sold to restaurants and, and whatnot and at the markets. And then, you know, just after that, we mostly just grew in our yard, like, turning I guess we were there during the whole food not lawns beginning of that uh, movement so we did that we basically dug up our lawn and started growing food um, in our backyard and front yard so um, yeah and I guess I had been looking for a place to come and and have my forever garden and I decided to come to Cortez and really happy to be here and feel feel really, you know, pleased with the way the garden has kind of taken hold. And um, it's such a Cortez thing to talk about a forever garden instead (laughs) of a forever home. (laughs) Yeah, which is, you know, we came here in our trailer. And the first thing we did was plant fruit trees and build the soil and put in the garden before we even, you know, built um, or put up our yurt to live in. So um, yeah, that was our priority. Smart people. So you talked about, um, or I introduced you as a clinical herbalist, Mm -hmm. and I know you're growing some herbs. Can you talk about what you're growing, and do you have any kind of inspiring advice for growing herbs that you can recommend? Um, Okay. Well, um, so as a herbalist, I started as a folk herbalist, so just mostly um, gathering herbs from my garden and making little salves and potions and creams for myself and my friends. And I later went on to study um, traditional Chinese medicine. And um, so I worked in a clinical setting with herbs. So um, preparing and administering herbs um, on an individual basis with clients. So catered to their individual needs. And um, so over the years, I've built up sort of um, my favorite herbs, I should, I would say. And I try to stick to, you know, about 50, 25 or 50, because you can really go overboard with herbs. I mean, there's just in the in the traditional Chinese medicine, um, there's about 400 to 500 different medicine herbs. And um, so... The herbs that I'm working with now are mostly plants that I've had with me for, 
you know, almost 15 to 20 years. They're, I call them my mother plants. Um, they're really my friends that I've been bringing along with me from garden to garden. And I, I'm really excited this year because it's the third year that they've been planted. And I have a rule that um, I've made as a herbalist or as a medicine maker that I don't harvest from the herbs until they've been living in their spot for at least three years. And I don't know why I do that. It's just an intuitive thing. And it seems to, um, it, it, it just feels better for me. And it gives me time to develop a relationship with the plant and really see um, it, or make sure that it's comfortable in its spot and that it's ready to share its medicine with me and with others. And so this year I've noticed a lot of the um, plants have been making babies. So sending little shoots off and sending seeds across to spots that they might prefer. And um, yeah, so that's, that's really exciting. So I think um, right now um, there's quite a few herbs growing in the garden. Um, the ones that I'm really excited about are also um, helping hold the soil up and the hill sandy hillside where all my fruit trees are planted. And, um, and there's just so many benefits to having herbs in the garden besides the medicine that they can offer you or share with you. Um, they're great for pollinators. They attract a lot of pollinators. And um, they help the other plants by bringing up nutrients. So some of the uh, herbs that have the bigger tap roots that go deep down um, will actually bring minerals up to the surface and share them with the plants around them. So they not only do they um, help heal people, they help heal the soil and they help their plant friends. That's around them. I love that idea. And I've started planting some herbs. Um, and one of the things I'm really liking about some of them, or so I hope, is that the deer don't eat them. Mm. <laughs> and I have a, a much more limited garden space than some. And so I'm always looking for herbs that can survive or plants that can really thrive outside of my deer fence. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things I'm trying this year is echinacea, which is one of the herbs that I feel comfortable using. Mm -hmm. um, and what about, are there a couple others that you might recommend to someone like me mm -hmm. to get started with that are not too challenging to grow and might offer some readily available benefits? Um, in terms of being deer proof? Or? They don't necessarily have to be deer proof. I'm not going <laughs> to add too really many. Yeah, 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 nothing is really deer proof. They will really actually Taste. eat anything if they yeah. get desperate enough. Um, well, I really like some of the culinary herbs that also have um, medicinal properties because they're really safe. And, um, you know, one thing about um, herbalism is um, it's really important to know um, how you're using the medicine and what you're using it for and who's using it because there are some um, contraindications uh, with certain herbs and I think there you know there's a lot of misinformation on the internet about how herbs can be used and just really important to either talk to a herbalist or get a really a good book 
um, that can, you know, inform you on all the different aspects of herbs. Um, just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> um, but I really, um, rosemary is one of my favorite um, herbs and the deer don't seem to bother it. Um, it's really fragrant. I think most of the herbs that are uh, fragrant, um, the deer sort of stay away from. They might try a little nibble, but um, they don't won't usually eat the whole plant. <laughs> um, and um, so rosemary is a really nice medicine as well. I use it all the time in my herbal teas for headaches and congestion if I have any. And um, it's also really balancing for the hormones. Uh, thyme is another really beautiful um, culinary herb that uh, doubles uh, has quite a few medicinal properties. Um, the flowering thyme I collect and uh, often will give to um, parents for their kids. Um, it's really good at um, balancing uh, the emotions. So, um, you know, for temper tantrums and things like that. <laughs> Um, or just like the entire period <laughs> from 13 to <laughs> yeah, 23. And, and it's really safe for little ones as well. So, um, And it's also really nice um, medicine for the lungs. Um, it's beneficial to the respiratory system, beneficial to the stomach. It has antibacterial and antiviral properties. And so those are two of my favorites. Um, bergamot's another really nice one or bee balm and it's has the most beautiful flowers it's very uh, attractive to hummingbirds as well so another good reason to have uh, bergamot and fantastic okay. if you love earl grey tea mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I did read that we can grow tea bushes here there mm -hmm. is someone who's growing actual tea for sale black tea in bc so uh, this is my my long-term apocalypse plan is to grow my own tea and my yeah. own bergamot. So I will be the source of Earl Grey tea for the island. That's great. <laughs> That's a great idea. Speaking of which, you're going to have a plant stand um, with some of these herbs eventually, right? Can you tell us, are you willing to tell us where it's going to be? Um, yeah. It's going to be secret. So I think I'm going to set up a little plant stand just um, outside at the top of my driveway, I live on the main road on Pseudo Point Road there across from Floyd's, where the tires are. And um, yeah, I'm going to put a little stand out there um, and just mostly offer medicinal herbs. Um, I'd love to see more people growing herbs. I'm excited to share more with aspiring herbalists in the community. And um so, and trading as well, trading herb plants is uh, wonderful, right? We do a lot of trading and sharing here, so that's great. Um, and yeah, so I'm in the process of sort of building a little, a little table to put at the top of the driveway and um, yeah, I'll have some medicinal plants there. I, I, I see a future where there's not just the little plant stand, but there's also Tammy there with a little like Lucy <laughs> would have, right? With, you know, and then herbal advice, you know, 10 cents, which <laughs> it would be really maybe a, a little bit more than that. That might so, be fun. Yeah. I, 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 I feel like the pandemic has brought out lots of creative potential in, in Cortesians. Yeah. And I think it's really important, especially during these times, to be able to go into your backyard and and um, 
pick something that you need to make you feel better. I love it. Thank you so much um, for being here. Thanks so I, much for inviting me. I, I I love that I'm getting to connect with people through gardening, although most of the people that I meet are like like Tammy, who talk about gardening as this wonderful healing um, experience for them. And and why I'm not there yet, I, I see a future where it could be possible for me too to not just get a slight level of anxiety when I walk into my garden. But this year, my garden actually looks beautiful. And when I walk into it, I feel so, so happy. Um, and I, I've gotten over that garden envy that is often really difficult for me, at least. <laughs> I would walk mm-hmm. into other people's gardens and feel just really green with envy. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for being part of my own personal transformation and for sharing what you know with your neighbors. I really appreciate it. I've got just a couple announcements that I want to make sure people know about Folk University along with Cortez Community Economic Development Association, which is 